Chinese all over. <laughs> Who's ever had a yard sale? Isn't that the most horrible thing in the whole world? I'm not talking about going to a yard sale. I mean having a yard sale. What a terrible experience of cleaning out all your closets, of all your worthless junk, and deciding what it is you're going to keep and what you're not going to keep, and, and putting little 25-cent price tags on everything and having everybody come by and, and see something for 25 cents and haggle you down from that. What a terrible experience. But we do these yard sales to get rid of our worthless junk that we don't want anymore. Well, the story goes that Satan once had a yard sale. His time was getting near the end and he was realizing that he wasn't going to be much long, much, much longer here on the earth. So he decided he was going to clean out some of the stuff that he wouldn't be needing. So he cleans out his closets and puts all of his worthless junk that he's not going to be using anymore out on these tables with price tags and everything. Now, Satan cleans out his closets. What's he cleaning out? He's cleaning out tools that he uses against God's people. So he cleaned out all these tools was figuring that he's not going to be needing very much anymore since his time was short. And he's putting all these tools out there that he's been using against God's people for all these centuries. And he, out there on the tables, he had anger, he had pride, he had uh, resentment, he had jealousy. He had all these tools that he's been using against God's people and they were all marked down to bargain basement prices. And all the demons came by and they're looking at all these tools. But there was one that was missing. And it was the tool of discouragement. And so some of the demons started asking Satan why it was that discouragement was not for sale. And Satan said, well, that is my most valuable tool of all. It's my most valuable tool, he said, because when I use that against God's people, they typically don't even know that it's me doing that. They think that it's just life. They think that that's just how things go. Or they think that the problem is themselves. And they don't even realize that it's me using discouragement against them. So I'm going to hang on to that tool. I tell that story this morning because our passage before us today is a passage about discouragement. It is a passage about a minister of the gospel becoming discouraged and how God will encourage them. So if you have your Bibles, then why don't you join me in Acts chapter 18. If you want to use a pew Bible, this is page 927 of your pew Bibles. Acts chapter 18, while you're finding that, let me just remind us of where we are uh, Paul has now left Athens. He's been in Athens for a while. He was in Athens by himself because he left Timothy and Silas in Berea, and they've been back and forth between Berea and Thessalonica. Paul went ahead to Athens by himself, and he's been ministering there in Athens with very little fruit, very little result. And he's finally called it quits there in Athens. There are a few believers. There's a small church there, but he now leaves to go to uh, the next destination, which is Corinth. We'll pick up here in chapter 18, verse 1. And we're going to be looking this morning at the first 17 verses of Acts chapter 18, beginning from verse 1. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went, with, and he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath, and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the Word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. 
I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household, and many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent. For I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. But when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal, and they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. Let's pray right now. Father, we pray Your anointing on this time as we open Your Word and we seek direction and instruction rebuke, correction, training, edification, encouragement from Your Word, I pray that You would be faithful once again and You would minister to Your people here this morning. I pray that You do this through Your Son, Jesus. Amen. So Paul now leaves Athens and he travels to Corinth, which was a southern journey. He's traveling south down to Corinth. And he gets here in Corinth and he finds a city which is about 20 times the size of the place that he just left. Athens was no small place. But it was a city of about 10,000 in those days. And he comes to Corinth, which is a city of about 200,000. And as he arrives here in Corinth, what we see is a picture of a man who is discouraged, a minister of the gospel who is deeply discouraged in the ministry in which he is engaged. Now, we might ask, well, how how do we see that? Because the word discouragement isn't even in the passage. Well, I think that we can see very clearly that Paul is discouraged from at least a couple of different things. One is that we see that Jesus Himself appears to Paul with words of encouragement in verses 9 and 10. Jesus comes to Paul in this vision to encourage him, which tells us that certainly Paul was discouraged. Why else would Jesus come to him in a vision like this to encourage him? So that lets us know that that Paul was discouraged at this point. But also we know that he was discouraged because if we look over to his first letter to the Corinthians, this is, this is in your sermon notes, which by the way, the sermon this morning has a lot of cross-references. They're all in your sermon notes. You may want to grab this and kind of follow along with me. But if you look over to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, when Paul writes to the Corinthian church, the Corinthian believers, here's what he said about himself and how he came to them. He says, And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. Doesn't sound like the typical Apostle Paul that we know of. So, He says that He came to them in weakness and fear and trembling. We put that together with Jesus' words of encouragement here to Paul now. And we see a picture of a man who is tremendously discouraged in his work in the Gospel. Now, why was Paul discouraged? Paul was discouraged, certainly, because he has encountered much difficulty. He has encountered much persecution. He's encountered physical persecution, physical beatings, emotional persecution. Um, mentally, he's been abused. He's been, um, he's been sort of put through the ringer. We know that every, nearly every place that Paul has gone, he's been kicked out. He was kicked out of Derby. He was kicked out of Lystra. 
He was kicked out of Philippi. He was kicked out of Thessalonica. He was kicked out of Berea. He may as well have been kicked out of Athens. Even though he wasn't physically kicked out of Athens, he was ridiculed and mocked in Athens so much with such little fruit there that he may as well have been kicked out of Athens as well. So he's, he's experienced tremendous persecution, tremendous uh, suffering, all of which was told to Paul ahead of time. Remember back in Acts chapter 9 when, when Jesus appears to Paul on the road to Damascus? Paul is converted. Then Jesus also appears to Ananias who is in Damascus. And he tells Ananias, this guy Paul is coming to you. And he goes ahead and tells Ananias, I will tell Paul how much he must suffer for me. So Paul knows that he is going to suffer tremendously for the kingdom of God, but that still doesn't lessen the impact of the physical suffering that he's endured. Paul has experienced much victory. The gospel has been victorious in many places, especially places like Derby and Thessalonica and Philippi. But regardless of the fact that, that the gospel is taking root and churches are born, nonetheless, that is still coming out of Paul's suffering. God is using Paul's suffering to do that. All of that takes place at the hand of of Paul as he suffers, as he'll tell us in Colossians chapter 1, as he's filling up what's lacking in Jesus' suffering in his own suffering. Paul is kind of like a football at this point. You know what a football is, what it would be like to be a football? If you're a football, then you would be abused by both teams no matter who's winning and who's losing. Think about this. It, the winning team abuses a football just as much as the losing team abuses the football. It gets spiked and kicked around and stomped on regardless if the team that has the ball is winning or losing. Paul's kind of the same thing right here. The gospel is winning, but nevertheless, he's being kicked around and he's being abused. And this would lead to great discouragement for Paul. The, the physical persecution, the abuse that he's taken, the beating that he took at Philippi, the, the stoning in Lystra, the imprisonment at Philippi, all these things are kind of playing an emotional toll on Paul right now. And Paul has become discouraged. Furthermore, Paul would be discouraged because of the place he just left. He just left Athens, and in Athens he received a tremendous culture shock. Because in Athens he was ministering to people who rejected everything about his whole worldview. Everything that Paul believed in was rejected at Athens. They even rejected the existence of a God. They rejected the sacred scriptures, and certainly that was discouraging to Paul. Are you discouraged when people reject everything about what you believe? I don't mean just minor differences in, in theology. I mean when people reject everything that you hold dear. Is that discouraging? Certainly it's discouraging. And so Paul leaves Athens carrying with him the, the discouragement that he encountered there. So he leaves this culture shock in Athens to go to a morality shock in Corinth. Because Corinth was perhaps the most immoral place on the planet at this day. We, um, as On Sunday nights as we're talking... As we're studying through 2 Corinthians, we've talked a lot about the city of Corinth and what the city of Corinth was like at this time. And it was immoral beyond belief. Widespread uh, licentious sex. Widespread fornication in every form that you could imagine. Homosexuality. Bestiality. All these things, these perversions were widespread. Illicit sex ruled the day in Corinth. So much so that 400 years before Paul, the Greek language had actually adopted a new word, and that word was Corinthianize. 
And that word literally was, it was a euphemism for fornicate. Because so much of that was taking place in Corinth that people just said, we're just going to use that as a word to describe that behavior. To Corinthianize was to fornicate. Widespread, uh, widespread sexual sin. We remember that the church in Corinth, remember that that, uh, that behavior even made its way into the church in Corinth. The one guy in the church there was sleeping with his stepmom. Later on, Paul's going to make his third missionary journey. And in his third missionary journey, he's going to spend some, some time in Corinth once again. And while he's in Corinth the next time, he's going to write his letter to the Romans. And in his letter to the Romans, in your sermon notes, Romans chapter 1, here's what Paul says to the Romans. For their women exchanged natural relations for those who are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalties for their error. Now Paul is talking about all people at that point, but he's writing those words while he's in Corinth looking at how the people around him are behaving. Corinth was a place of widespread immorality. And that certainly had to be discouraging for the Apostle Paul. Are you discouraged when you see immorality all around you? Especially when you see immorality celebrated? Certainly that's discouraging. And so all these things, I think, come together for the Apostle Paul. And they have this effect of discouraging him. Sometimes we think about Paul in superhuman ways, don't we? We think about Paul as this man of of steel, emotions of steel, incapable of being discouraged, was always full of the joy of the Lord. And certainly that was true of the Apostle Paul in places like Philippians and Colossians and Ephesians. But that's not to say that the Apostle Paul was not human and not capable of taking his eyes off of Jesus and putting them on his earthly circumstances and thereby becoming discouraged. That's exactly, I think, what Paul has done at this time. He has, at least momentarily, taken his eyes off of the Gospel and put them on his earthly circumstances and he has become discouraged. And so our passage this morning is all about how God ministers to Paul and encourages him in the midst of his discouragement. I find in the passage at least three ways that God ministers to Paul to encourage him. And we're just going to kind of walk through those. Beginning here, verse 1. Paul left Athens. He comes to Corinth. He found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And And he went to see them. And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. So the first way that I see that Paul is encouraged by God is through fellowship with other believers. Let's not forget that Paul's been by himself for a while. We don't know how long he was in Athens, but the whole time he was in Athens, it was just Paul. Now, a few people believed and came to faith in Jesus, but that's not quite the same as fellowshipping with other believers. They were baby Christians, and that didn't provide for Paul the same kind of fellowship with believers that he finds in Aquila and Priscilla. Aquila and Priscilla are believers, and I think we have every reason to believe that they were mature believers at this point. We're told that they were kicked out of Rome. They were kicked out of Rome because they were Christians. Now I know the passage says that the Jews had to leave Rome, but uh, Claudius didn't... Luke's not telling us that Claudius kicked all the Jews out of Rome. That would have been a massive exodus of people. The, The ones that Claudius kicked out of Rome were the Jews who were causing problems because they were this new sect of Judaism, this new strain of Judaism that believed that Jesus was the Messiah. See, 
at this time, Christians, they still didn't think of themselves as not Jews. They, they thought of themselves as Jews who now believed in the Messiah. So they were calling themselves Jews. They still associated with the Jewish faith. And so Claudius kicks those Jews out of Rome. So Aquila and Priscilla are themselves the recipients of persecution. They uh, had a business in Rome. They were tent makers, which means that they had customers and a business base built up. They had to leave all of that. They had to leave their homes. Possibly they were physically assaulted as well. They've left their families. They've left their, their loved ones in Rome. Aquila and Priscilla can relate to Paul because they themselves have sacrificed for the Gospel. Likewise, they're of the same trade. They're both tent makers. So Paul moves in with them. They have a lot of things in common. And so Paul receives fellowship now with Aquila and Priscilla. Isn't it encouraging? Isn't fellowship from other believers encouraging when we're discouraged? And so this is one way that Paul is encouraged by God is through the fellowship with Aquila and Priscilla. But that's not all. If we skip ahead to chat to uh, verse 5, verse 5 we see that Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia. So Silas and Timothy, again, they didn't go with Paul to Athens. They stayed behind in Macedonia. They went back and forth between Berea and Thessalonica, ministering to the new churches there in those two areas, and possibly even Philippi as well. But they stayed back, and they were ministering to those believers. Paul went to Athens by himself, now he goes to Corinth, and Silas and Timothy join him in Corinth, and Paul now receives fellowship from Silas and Timothy, two believers, two mature believers, whom Paul has roots with. He's got a background with them. Right? He's, Timothy is somebody that was very special in Paul's heart. Silas has been with him throughout this entire journey. And so Paul now reunites with them and has fellowship with them once again. That has to be encouraging for Paul. But fellowship was not the only thing that Silas and Timothy brought for Paul. If we were to flip over, this is in your notes as well, if we were to look over in Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians, which Paul writes to the Thessalonians at this period, when he's in Corinth, he writes this first letter to the Thessalonians. If we look over there in your sermon notes, 1 Thessalonians 3, verse 6 and 7, we read this, But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love, and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. So Timothy and Silas come bringing fellowship to Paul, but also they bring news of the church in Thessalonica. And it's good news. The believers in Thessalonica, the faith has taken root. Their church is growing. They're being changed. Spiritually, they're adding to their numbers most likely. And Paul receives that news and he hears of the work of God in the body at Thessalonica and he's encouraged by that. Because to see the work of God in others is encouraging for the believer, isn't it? Can't help but think of Barnabas here. right? Chapter 11, Barnabas goes to Antioch and the passage there in chapter 11 says that when Barnabas saw the grace of God, he was glad. Believers are encouraged to see God working in the lives of others. Paul was encouraged here as well to hear of the work of God in the Thessalonian church. But also, Timothy and Silas, they bring fellowship, they bring news of the church, but they also bring something else. If we were to look in your sermon notes to Paul's second letter to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 9, Paul says this there. He says, When I was with you, meaning right now, when I was with you and I was in need, meaning financial need, I did not anyone 
For the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied my need. The brothers who came from Macedonia, obviously Paul's talking about Silas and Timothy. And so they came bearing gifts from the believers in Thessalonica, from the believers in Philippi. So the believers in the church in Thessalonica and the believers in the church in Philippi gave to Timothy and Silas money to take to Paul to support Paul. So Paul must have been encouraged by that. Here Paul is, is, is probably working six days a week making tents, trying to support himself, trying to make ends meet. He's spending each Sabbath in the synagogue teaching about Jesus, preaching about Jesus. But no doubt, there was some financial hardship there. Here comes this gift of support from the believers in Thessalonica, the believers in Philippi. Paul receives that and he's greatly encouraged by that because the believers in those two churches have been moved by God to support Paul financially. Easing his financial burden, freeing up some time to preach the Gospel more. And Paul had to be encouraged by that. I think of the countless times that I've been encouraged at, at times, sometimes when I'm particularly discouraged. And then a card shows up with a gift. Um, I think of, of, uh, of the times um, when there was a fellowship for me, it was like a surprise fellowship in the fellowship hall for my birthday or something like that. Terribly encouraging. Or um, once my wife put together this surprise birthday party in the Sunday school class in our previous church. Terribly encouraging things when you're reminded that other believers are moved to give financially. Not that the money is the important thing, but the fact that God has moved them in their heart to support them. Paul had to be encouraged by this. So God is encouraging Paul through fellowship with Aquila Priscilla, through fellowship with Timothy and Silas, through the news of the church there in Thessalonica, as well as Philippi, and through the financial gift that they bring to him. But let's keep on going in verse 4. And he reasoned in the synagogues every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Timothy and Silas arrived, or Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, you, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. It's here that we should remind ourselves of something we know to be true. And it's this. Not everything that the Bible tells us is intended for us to imitate. Not everything that the Bible tells us is given to us as the example of godly behavior that we are to copy. We know this to be true, right? Especially prominent in the Old Testament passages. Sometimes we read about how Jacob had two wives and had children by four women. Certainly God doesn't intend for us to emulate that behavior. Instead, the Bible tells us that because that was the fact. That was part of the story. It's narrating the story to us, and it's telling us how sinful people sometimes live in a sinful world. I think this is an example of the same thing. I think that we're told this because, not because this is what we should do, but instead because this is simply how the Apostle Paul was reacting. Remember, he's disappointed. He's discouraged. His frustration just sort of boils over because the Jews continue to reject his message. They continue to reject the Gospel. And he just sort of reaches a point where he just reacts sinfully 
to their rejection. It says it shakes out his garments at them, which was a sign. It was something the Jews would do to say, you know, I'm done with you. It was different from, from shaking the dust off your feet. Remember we've talked about shaking the dust off your feet? Um, and how Jesus tells us that when people refuse to hear the message of the Gospel, we shake the dust off of our feet. Sometimes we think that that means that, okay, I've told you, I'm done. I'm washing my hands of that. I've told you, now I'm going to go somewhere else. That is not what that means. Shaking the dust off your feet doesn't mean that you're done telling the Gospel to somebody. What it means is, when someone refuses the Gospel, you give them no reason to believe that they're okay with God. You see, when ancient Jews would, would leave the Holy Land, when they would leave the Promised Land, and then re-enter, before they re-entered the Promised Land, they'd take their shoes off and shake the dust off their feet, as if to say, this is God's land, that's not. I don't want to bring any of that dirty dirt over into God's clean dirt, right? And so it was a way of saying, this is the boundary line. This is the line of demarcation. This is God's land, that is not. And so when Jesus says, that when people refuse to receive the Gospel, you shake the dust off your feet at them. What He's saying is, give them no reason to believe that they're okay. Give them no reason to believe that because they've rejected the Gospel of Jesus Christ, that they're okay with God. That's what shaking the dust off your feet means. But the Bible teaches us that we are never, ever, 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 ever are to stop telling the Gospel to people. Paul himself is perhaps the greatest example of this. If anybody was a hard-hearted persecutor of Jesus, it was Paul. Yet Jesus never gave up on Paul. So likewise, we never give up on those who refuse to hear the Gospel. So Paul shakes out his garments, which is a sign of saying, I'm done with you. I'm washing my hands of this. I'm, I'm, that's it. I'm going to the Gentiles. And Paul is acting sinfully here. Yes, he's frustrated. Yes, he's dis discouraged and disappointed. And he is right to say that their guilt is on their own heads. He is right to say that I'm innocent of your guilt because I've told you. He is right to say that God has called him as the apostle to the Gentiles. But that is nonetheless not reason for him to act sinfully, to, to, to tell these Jewish unbelievers that he's done with them, that he's going to, now going to the Gentiles. Paul is just filled with discouragement and frustration. Because he says to them, I'm done with you. I'm going to the Gentiles. But is that what Paul does? If we look to the, next, the very next place that Paul goes, the next place he goes is Ephesus. If we flip over to chapter 19, verse 8, what's Paul do in Ephesus? He entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. Paul is not done with the Jews. Paul was frustrated, and in his frustration he reacted Sinfully. Again, isn't the Bible wonderful in the sense that it gives us a true picture of people? It doesn't sugarcoat the ministers of the Gospel to hold up this unrealistic example of people who never sinned, but instead it gives us a perfectly believable picture of humans who are indwelt by the Spirit and do incredible things for the kingdom of God, yet at the same time, they still battle with sin within themselves. So he says this, he has this reaction to them, I'm done with you. I'm now going to the Gentiles. Verse 7, And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. So Paul leaves the synagogue, and where does God take him? All the way next door. Isn't that wonderful? 
that God just sets Paul up right beside the synagogue. Which is, by the way, the best place for a church to be, isn't it? The best location for a church is right beside a synagogue, or right beside a mosque, or right beside a, a Mormon temple, or right beside a bar. I think of, uh, it's not there anymore, but you remember the church that used to share the parking lot with the dockside dolls on 85? I couldn't remember the name of that church. It's gone now. I don't know if they moved or whatever. But the church used to share the parking lot with the Dockside Dolls Strip Club. What a wonderful place for a church to be. Can you think of a better church for a place to be than right beside the people who need it most? God never calls Christians to insulate ourselves from this world. He never calls us to go make a compound in Texas and live there, not interacting with the world around us. Instead, the best place for the people of God to be is right beside the people that need us most. And so he sets up shop right here at the home of Titius Justice. You've got to believe that Paul's preaching the gospel from his front door. Every Sabbath, people are coming to the synagogue, leaving the synagogue, and the whole time they've got to pass by Paul, and they're going to hear the gospel as they come by. And so now verse 9, I'm sorry, verse 8, Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household, and many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. So there's a, another tremendous, tremendous encouragement by God for Paul, converts. Converts. The Corinthians start to believe. They're converted. They're baptized. The church is born. How incredibly encouraging for Paul. You know that ministers of the Gospel and, and partakers of the Gospel, what encourages us more than to see people turn from sin and turn from themselves, turn from their wicked ways and turn to Christ alone. What encourages us more than that? Tremendous encouragement. These converts are, are starting to happen. Paul's got to be encouraged by that. But there's this other fellow who's not just any old convert, as if there was such a thing as any old convert, but there's this one fellow, Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue. Now the ruler of the synagogue is not the same thing as a Jewish pastor. The, the Jews didn't work that way. They didn't have one spiritual leader for a synagogue. But instead, the, the ruler of the synagogue was sort of the facilitator. He, he, he sort of controlled the synagogue. He made sure that the prayer services were open, that everything was in, put in order and all that sort of thing. He was sort of the head honcho for the synagogue, not in a spiritual way, but just in a more physical sort of way. But nonetheless, he was tremendously important for the Jewish faith the ruler of the synagogue would have been someone that everyone looked to for leadership in that synagogue. And here it is that Crispus is converted. How powerful is that? For God to convert not just people who believe differently, but, for, but to convert people who are leaders of those who believe differently. What a tremendous encouragement for Paul. It's, it's encouraging when anybody believes. When anybody who follows other faiths changes and believes into the true faith, that's certainly encouraging. But when leaders convert, that boy, that is, that is tremendously encouraging. And, and that, God, that's, that's something that God is still doing today. I was reading just recently about Mohab Yusef. You probably heard about Mohab Yusef in the news, maybe. Mohab Yusef is a 30-year-old Christian, and you can tell by his name that he probably has Muslim background. In fact, he was um, a convert from Islam, but not just any old convert. He was the firstborn son of the leader of Hamas. And you know what Hamas is. Hamas is, is a violent, anti-Jewish, anti-Christian terrorist organization. 
the leader of Hamas, his firstborn son, has converted to Christianity and sought asylum here in the U.S. What an incredibly encouraging thing when leadership in false faiths converts to Christianity. But let's keep going. Let's, let's now skip verses 9-11. through 11. We'll come back to that. Let's look now at verse 12 because the end of the story is connected to the middle of the story. Verse 12, But when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, so remember what proconsul is. Back in, in Cyprus, there was a proconsul in Cyprus. He was Sergius Paulus. The proconsul was the Roman ruler of the province. So Gallio is a Roman. He's a Roman official. He is the highest ranking person in the province. This guy Gallio is proconsul of Achaia. The Jews made a united attack on Paul. So not just an attack, a united attack. A, a pre-planned, organized attack against Paul. And they brought tribunal, saying, this man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, stop right there. So the Jews dragged Paul before the council, once again before the tribunal, saying this man is breaking the law because he's teaching people contrary to our law. Same kind of thing that happened for Jesus, right? But as Paul is about to open his mouth to defend himself, Gallio stops him and he says, if it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them out of the tribunal. So Gallio gets it right. He understands that the role of government is not to decide matters of faith. That is not the role of government. The role of government, Paul tells us in Romans 13, Peter tells us in 1 Peter 3, the role of government is to maintain the peace and to punish evildoers. That's the role of the government. The role of the government is not to decide religious questions or questions on faith. Gallio recognizes that this is a question about faith, and he says, uh-uh, I ain't getting in that. That's your own dispute. You settle it on your own. He refuses to be involved in matters of faith and make this decision on matters of faith. Don't you wish that some of our politicians today would follow the lead of Gallio and would stay out of matters of faith? Because it is not the role of government to determine matters of faith. Our founding fathers understood this very well. They believed deeply in the concept of separation in church of state, separation of church and state. Now we've, perver we've perverted that whole idea of separation of church and state today to mean something that it was never intended to mean. Today, we look at that as protecting the state from the, from, uh, the church so that maybe uh, people of faith don't have a place in government or faith doesn't have a role in government. That's never at all what the Founding Fathers intended. They believed in separation of church and state not to protect the state from the church, but to protect the church from the state. They, had, they didn't want the state getting involved in matters of faith. They wanted the state to stay out of matters of faith. But, by the way, folks, I'll just say this. The days of that being reality here are numbered. The days of the state staying out of religious questions are numbered. I'm not a prophet. I'm, I don't claim to know the future and speak for God. God didn't give me a word for this. But the days of the state staying out of telling the church what they can't cannot teach are numbered. 
And you'd best decide right now what you're going to do when those days actually come. Decide that right now before it happens. What will you do when the state begins to tell the church that it cannot teach what it's been teaching? The way I began earlier, as I was talking about the homosexuality in Corinth and what Paul had to say about all that, I believe the day is coming in which that will be considered a crime. But in any case, we digress with that. The state has no role in matters of, of faith. Gallio recognizes this and says, you, you decide this on your own. So he drives them out from the tribunal. Verse 17, And they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. So, we see mob violence again, only this time it's not directed against Paul. This time it's directed against this poor guy Sosthenes. They grab him and they beat him up. The Roman tribunal has nothing to do with it. They watch the whole thing and don't get involved. So, the question is, who beat Sosthenes? Don't you wish Luke told us? He says, they beat Sosthenes. And he doesn't tell us who they is. It's rather important who they is, don't you think? There's, there's three options. Option one, the Gentiles, the Corinthian Gentiles beat Sosthenes because, you know, anti-Semitism was alive and well in the Roman Empire just like it is today. So perhaps they just don't like the fact that this guy Sosthenes wasted Gallio's time and these matters of Jewish faith, and so they just grab him and beat him up. That's one option. The other option is that the Jews beat up Sosthenes. They were, they were sort of embarrassed that Sosthenes uh, didn't present a better case against Paul, maybe. And so they grabbed Sosthenes and they beat him up. The third option is that the Christians beat him up. Because he tried to bring these charges against Paul. didn't work, but he tried anyway. And so the Christians beat him up. We hope that's not the case. But Luke doesn't tell us. I don't think it was the Christians. The reason I don't think it was the Christians is not because I don't think the Christians were capable. I think that we've proven that we're capable of doing stuff like that. The reason I don't think it was the Christians that beat him up is because of what happened to Sosthenes. If we were to turn to Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, he opens it this way. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 2. Verses 1 and 2. Paul called by the will of God to, the, to, to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes. Now, we don't know who that Sosthenes is. Paul never tells us. But we do know that he has a close connection with the church in Corinth. And we know that Sosthenes is not an everyday sort of name. So to me, the most logical conclusion is that that Sosthenes is the same one that was beat up in Corinth. Which would mean that he was later converted, which makes it unlikely that the Christians were the ones that beat him up. Now follow this. Crispus was the ruler of the synagogue. Sosthenes was the ruler of the synagogue. How are they both the ruler of the synagogue? Well, Crispus comes to faith in Jesus and he doesn't have a job anymore. He's replaced by Sosthenes. And then Sosthenes converts. God converts the leader of the synagogue and then converts the replacement that comes after him. Isn't God amazing in this passage? What an encouragement to Paul that must have been. Not just one, but two leaders of the opposition are converted to faith in Jesus. How encouraging this must have been for Paul. So we see God encourages Paul through fellowship, through the gifts of the other believers, through news of what's happening in the other churches in Macedonia. He encourages him through converts. 
through, especially through leaders that are converting. But lastly, let's look back up now to verse 9. And we're going to see here the main, the way of encouragement. Verse 9, And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. For I am with you and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and a half teaching the Word of God among them. These other things were encouraging to Paul. But that was the encouragement. Jesus appears to Paul in this vision and speaks words of encouragement to him. Do not fear. How often does the Bible tell us that? Do not fear. Hundreds of times the Bible tells us do not fear. Do not fear. Continue speaking My Word. You will not be harmed. Jesus is not saying that you're never going to be harmed again. We know that Paul is. He's saying that here in Corinth, you will not be harmed in Corinth. I have many people here who are mine. Meaning, your ministry is going to have success here. But there, there are many people in Corinth that are my people, that I have elected as my people. It's your job to find them and preach the gospel to them. So Paul is encouraged by that. But the central encouragement here is Jesus' words, I will be with you. Isn't that the supreme encouragement that we as Christians receive from God? Yes, all these other things can be encouraging, but outside of the presence of God, they're temporary at best. It is the presence of God with us that is our ultimate supreme encouragement. I think here of uh, the Great Commission, which Paul is, by the way, fulfilling. The Great Commission. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded. And behold, I will be with you always. Our God calls Himself Emmanuel. God with us. And that is the supreme encouragement for the child of God. How many times have I heard Christians encourage one another or encourage themselves? You know, God's with me. He's not going to leave me. He's right here with me in this. Hebrews 13.5 He will never leave us nor forsake us. How encouraging is that to us? Or think of the 23rd Psalm. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for His name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. It is the presence of God with us that is the supreme encouragement. Why? Why is it so encouraging to know that God is with us? Because, friends, for Jesus to unite Himself together with us, for Him to unite Himself to those who in faith have believed upon Him, what that means is that what we experience, He experiences. For Jesus to be united together with you means that what you experience, He experiences. Remember what He says in Matthew's Gospel? Whatever you've done to the least of these, you've done to Me. 
What we experience, Jesus experiences. When Paul was beaten in Philippi, Jesus was beaten in Philippi. When Paul was stoned in Lystra, Jesus was stoned in Lystra. Now, why is that supremely encouraging for Paul? If Jesus experiences what we experience, then what would that mean if even one of the people that has called upon the saving name of Jesus Christ, if even one of those was lost, what would that mean for Jesus? If even one person who has called upon the name of Jesus and repented in faith, if even one person is lost, it means Jesus goes with them. Because the union between Jesus and His people is forever. I will never leave you nor forsake you, he says in Hebrews 13.5. There is no greater assurance of our spiritual security than to know that God is with us. Whatever we experience, He experiences. Wherever we go, He goes. Which assures us we are His and we will be with Him for eternity.